ultimately, just if you think about this from a strategic asset allocation perspective, you know, especially for some of you slower moving institutional RA type investors, you need to make sure that you're aware of these risks. They're not all bad risks. You know, I think the stock market's going to go up a lot. <laughs> Bitcoin's going to go up a lot. You know, yep. bonds are going to go down a lot. They're not all bad risks. You just need to be aware of the risks and making sure that, you know, you're constantly orienting your investment posture from a strategic standpoint in association and in appreciation of these risks. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. While the Fed has succeeded in bringing inflation, as measured by headline CPI, down from 9% to under 4%, it hasn't won the battle yet. In fact, CPI has been rising over the past several months. Today's experts cautions that we're likely to see an unwelcome transition from what he calls immaculate disinflation to sticky inflation, which could serve as the death nail for the current bull run in the markets. Why? Well, let's ask him. We're fortunate to have market analyst Darius Dale return to the program. Darius, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. It's great to be back with you and your viewers, man. You guys do great work here at Wealthion. Thank you. Thank you. And you do great work yourself in 42 Macro. Um, and I think maybe you've just had your greatest accomplishment of all, which is getting married. <laughs> Congratulations, yes, my friend. It is definitely the greatest achievement of my life to date, man. I really appreciate it. Very happy, very blessed. Wow. Oh, all right. Well, couldn't be prouder for you, folks. Please give Darius uh, his well-deserved props in the comments section below. Darius, when you were on last time, we had an amazing interview. Went very long, uh, but it was all just awesome stuff. Uh, lots of charts, lots of great uh, insights uh, on your end. Uh, I'm assuming we're probably only going to set the bar even higher this time. Uh, very excited to dive into that with you. Got a lot of specific questions here for you, but if we can just start with a regular high-level question, I like to kick these discussions off with, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so I think, say one of divergence, um, divergence between you know places where we're continuing to see above trend growth and inflation like US and Japan to economies where we're starting to see below trend growth, namely China and Europe. And that divergence has had a pretty material impact as it relates to the global currency market. As you know, Adam, the global currency market is a pretty big input uh, to the global liquidity uh, matrix. And so ultimately, we believe those divergences are likely to persist. And they're obviously going to continue to have impacts for asset markets um, over the medium term. All right. Um, well, let's talk about those divergences and about what the implications are going to be. Um, very quickly, though, let's let's just start with the quote of yours that I pulled in the introduction there. Um, here's the full quote you said. We're going to transition from immaculate disinflation as a market narrative to sticky inflation in the coming months. And that could be the death nail for this bull market. But we're not there yet. Uh, so can you define for us immaculate disinflation, why you think inflation is going to be sticky going forward, and why may this be the thing that actually causes the uh, the economy to stumble here? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's take a step back and, and kind of talk about where we were, how we how we've gotten to this point in asset markets. Um, you know, this year, you know, one of the things we talked about uh, at the beginning of the year with our friend Bob Elliott, um, we pivoted to this kind of transitory Goldilocks theme, uh, underpinning kind of risk assets throughout 2023, uh, mm -hmm. was the confluence of immaculate disinflation plus resilient U.S. economy. I think the last time we were on, we were talking about uh, the likelihood that the U.S. economy was likely to remain resilient at least until uh, Q4 of this year, perhaps Q1 of next year. And that's a view we've had really since going back to last summer. Uh, have not deviated. It, it, it's hard to interrupt, but but that's what's happened. 
so far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a, as a matter of fact, if I can, um, if I could share my screen, as you know, I like to do that. Uh, let me just hop right into our, um, our most recent macro scouting report. So we put out this presentation every month to help investors kind of understand the full distribution of uh, probable economic outcomes. And with respect to that um, resilient U.S. economy thing, this is a theme that we discussed and authored last summer. Uh, and there's 10 reasons why the U.S. economy has been resilient since then and why we, I think we've been on the right side of, of pushing back against recession fears uh, and, you know, throughout the 2023. We still think recession's coming. Perhaps 2020, uh, Q4, Q1 is kind of the modal outcome expectation there, uh, but it's kept us on the right side of risk really throughout the year. And so there's 10 factors contributing to that resilient U.S. economy theme, Adam. We don't have to go through all of them in, um, in great detail, but I'll just quickly list them. We've got household balance sheets that are flush with cash. We have corporate balance sheets that are flush with cash. We've got ample liquidity uh, that's made the private sector impervious to rate hikes. Uh, we have longer, longer and variable lags in this business cycle. We've limited credit cycle vulnerabilities. We've limited exposure from the volatile manufacturing sector, which tends to account for, as we talked about last time, 98% uh, of the net job loss we tend to experience in recession here in the U.S. economy. We have a perfect storm for new housing development. We got Biden and Onyx juicing the economy from a, from a fiscal stimulus standpoint. Immigration spiked in the last couple of years. And then lastly, we have labor hoarding, which is actually charting the path, a uh, potential credible path to a soft landing, although we still don't believe that's the modal outcome. So, and Adam, you, you sort of answered the question about, asked the question about uh, sticky inflation. Uh, it's our it's been our view that one as a function of the resiliency of the U.S. economy that the immaculate disinflation, which has been one half of the sort of you know kind of transitory Goldilocks vibe, we got this resilient U.S. economy, we got this immaculate disinflation, put those together, we get transitory Goldilocks. We knew in January when we made the call that it was eventually going to run out because ultimately the U.S. economy is not an economy that has historically seen. Uh, you know, uh, you know, inflation go from significantly above trend to back to neutral trend or below trend without a recession. And so there's a couple of um, a series of analysis that we uh, perform to get us to that view. I'll start with our uh, hope plus I framework, which, you know, you and I talked about Michael Cantorich's a hope framework uh, last yep. time on the program. I did some research on our own. We did some research on our own 42 macro and we arrived at similar conclusions. But one thing I think uh, is missing for Michael's framework that we added to this discussion, which is what happens to inflation in and around recession. And so um, in terms of how this re interpret this chart, what I'm showing here is the median 10 year trailing 10 year Delta adjusted Z score for a basket of indicators that represents each of these cycles. And when we say Delta adjusted, that sounds fancy, but it's all we really mean is to orient the, the uh, time series. So that up is good and, and down is bad. So you think about inverting jobless claims and things of that nature. And so housing. Right. And Derek, Derek, sorry to interrupt, but just for the yeah, viewers that don't know, what is a Z score? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Z score is the normalized change from the mean uh, it's from uh, from the mean of a time series. So it's, um, you know, for example, a minus two sigma reading is an extreme uh, uh, normalized change from the whatever the mean is or whatever the duration of that mean is. And so what we're effectively trying to do is normalize everything. So we put everything on one chart and one and one, you know, simple analysis. And so, uh, what so we, that we can compare apples to apples. Basically. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. Exactly. Exactly. And so um, just uh, really quickly in terms of getting to the inflation uh, punchline here. Housing tends to break down around 18 months ahead of a recession. So this chart is oriented around recession in terms of months before and months after recession. Uh, orders, you know, the basket of indicators that represents the order cycle tend to break down around eight to 10 months ahead of a recession. Production and profits tend to break down four to six months ahead of a recession. Employment tends to break down right on time when the recession begins, which makes sense mm -hmm. that ER uses recession or employment statistics largely to, uh, to date the business cycle. But what we find is that inflation tends to break down six to eight months after a recession uh, relative to its, um, you know, relative to its trailing 10 year uh, mean of, of, of time uh, relative to a trailing 10 year time series. And so what we know is that, okay, we've experienced a ton of disinflation thus far 
you know, in this business cycle. And part of it is because part of the elements of inflation were in fact transitory. You get things like used car prices, airfares, et cetera. But there's an underlying level of inflation that is likely to, you know, kind of stop uh, disinflating, you know, well before we get back to 2% inflation. And we sort of, um, you know, having performed this analysis, kind of continue to see that as the most likely outcome. And one final thing I'll say on inflation, I think we might have briefly touched on this in the previous discussion, is that when you kind of look at the evolution of core PCE inflation in and around recession, what this chart is, is a, co a collection of indicators to help investors understand how things like the labor market cycle, the growth cycle, earnings cycle, et cetera, you know, kind of um, perform in and around recession. And specifically with respect to inflation, if you look at the basis point change in core PCE inflation in the year ahead of recessions, we typically are flat to up in the year leading into recession with only one negative uh, value in this particular sample. So what we know mm -hmm. is that it's very unusual experience immaculate disinflation, which is why we're calling it immaculate anyway. And ultimately, we understand that that, that immaculate disinflation is likely to run up. All right. Um, head, head back, if you can, to your, your yeah, hope, sure. hope plus I. Uh, it's right there. Yep. Uh, okay. So um, uh, where to start here? Um, for, first on inflation. Um, so you, 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 the chart here basically shows inflation tends to be sticky. Uh, through the recession, and it's only once recession hits that you finally get the inflation actually breaking uh, under control. And so that's what we should expect here is more or less what you're saying. Yeah. Um, the, the stickiness that we seem to be seeing right now seems to be much more skewed to the services side of the picture versus goods. Is that correct? Uh, yes, uh, yes, and no. <laughs> so uh, we, the, we have been experiencing a significant amount of immaculate disinflation for both. We are now starting to see immaculate disinflation come into the, uh, or sorry, uh, sticky inflation start to come into the picture, primarily through the lens of headline inflation, which had, you know, which had broken down, um, you know, much far faster and sooner than um, than the, the services components of inflation. And so, what I'm showing in this chart is headline CPI. We popped up the 3.9 percent on a three-month annualized basis in the most recent month. That was gain was driven by. Uh, modest acceleration in food inflation at 2.4%, but primarily driven by this big pop to 25.4% through month annualized energy inflation. And this yeah. is the first time we've seen three month annualized energy inflation in the US economy on a, a positive at all since going back to the half, second half of last year, kind of the middle of last year. So that's concerning. But when you juxtapose that from um, from from um, you know core inflation and things like services inflation, you know it's sort of suggesting that we are now kind of at the vanguard of what could be a sticky inflation thing that we think will kind of be consensus amongst market participants. Let's say in in, in at least uh, three months or so. Um, and so when you look at core uh, CPI, you know we decelerated to two point four percent through month annualized. We're very much close to the pre-COVID mean. That's what the light blue uh, uh, li uh, um, numbers represent in these charts. We have negative uh, core goods in, uh, the, uh, inflation at minus 1.9% through month annualized. Yep. We've been kind of stuck at 4% for, for three months now in terms of core services inflation, but that's been primarily um, driven by, uh, we continue to see deceleration in shelter inflation. We're now at 4.4%, but we've also seen a little bit of a lift in super core CPI inflation to 2.2%. We're still below the pre-COVID trend of 2.3%, so that's very positive, but we're now no longer improving. And it could be the case that if we continue to see wage pressure in the weeks and months ahead, um, that this number could really start to move in a, in a very adverse manner uh, as it relates to asset markets and the Fed reaction function. All right, and let's let's actually talk, talk for a quick second about your expectations for uh, wage inflation going forward. You know, we're, we're all of a sudden seeing you know, big unions out there demanding pretty substantial um, wage and benefit increases. Um, do you think it's more likely that this is a trend we're going to see more of going forward? Or is this something that would 
dissipate once the recession arrives and you know companies are in a layoff mode? Yeah, so there's two answers to that question. So yes, uh, so in this basket of inflation indicators, there's about, I want to say about eight uh, indicators. Uh, wages are a part of that basket as well. So we do know that wages are tend to be lagging the business cycle uh, with respect to inflation. Um, but there's a couple of other reasons why we continue to think that wages are likely to be you know, sticky through this process. They're likely to continue decelerating, but decelerating at an above trend pace that okay. ultimately means inflation is going to remain sticky through until we get to the other side of the recession. So I'll give you a couple of charts to kind of support that thesis. Um, so if you look at corporate profitability, what I'm showing in the spread area chart in this in this um, plot in this chart is our what we call our corporate profit cycle model. And so that's nominal GDP, nominal gross domestic income, the year over year rate of change gross domestic income. And we minus the we subtract the spread between unit labor costs and productivity from that from that from nominal um, gross domestic income growth. And what we see is that it's on a, on a structural basis is actually quite low. That 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 spread is 177 basis points wide versus a, a mean, a long-term average of a five uh, four basis points wide. So we know there's a tremendous amount of margin pressure on corporates um, on corporates right now. So there's going to have some, some issues in terms of generating earnings and cash flows. And as long as that margin pressure remains elevated, they're going to have no choice but to pass on, on the price increases to their customers. So on the blue line in this chart, I'm showing private sector average hourly earnings growth on a year-over-year -year basis minus non-farm productivity on a year-over-year -year basis. And that spread has historically been correlated to big spikes in inflation. It's not always correlated with inflation. There's times when inflation is kind of doing a whole heck of a lot of nothing. But whenever you've seen these big spikes in inflation dating back to the 70s and obviously now in the 2020s, you know, we've typically seen, hey, whenever, you know, the private sector's wage growth is, is significantly outpacing their growth of aid of their productivity, the goods and services that they're producing in the economy, that's when corporations feel like they have to pass on, you know, producer price inflation uh, to uh, to their to their customers. And we are, in fact, seeing an acceleration in producer price inflation. If you look at the last PPI report, we uh, popped to 4.2% on a three-month annualized basis in, P in headline PPI. It's the highest number we've seen since the middle of last year as well. So we are now moving in the wrong direction for some of these leading processes of inflation in terms of, you know, kind of causing inflation to kind of get sticky at a level that's inconsistent with the Fed's 2% mandate. Okay. All right. Yeah. And you're making a great job here for why inflation is likely to remain sticky mm -hmm. through, you know, the point at least where the recession hits. Um, so, you know, further inflation relief is not necessarily that likely in the immediate term here is what I hear you saying. And the data certainly seems to be proving that out. I will um, say, uh, I will yeah. make one, one, one caveat. We do think we're going to continue to see some relief in the very immediate term. I just think as you get three, four or five months away, the probability that that relief goes to zero and the probability that the pain starts to rise is actually quite high in terms of these leading uh, edges of the inflation process. Okay. Yeah. Um, let me let me ask you a really high level question before we get back down into the details here. Um, I was having a conversation yesterday with an analyst, and um, they had said that um, you know we're talking about potential further wage increases, especially through you know what's going on with a lot of the the unions right now. And um, their their point was, if you look at corporate profits as a percentage of GDP now versus past decades, um, they're much higher now. And so his general conclusion was, there's a lot of padding inside corporate profits right now, where they could absorb a lot of the increase in, 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 in wages, right, without having to pass it on to the customer. Um, and we were talking not necessarily what's going to happen next month or next quarter, but kind of over the next decade or so. And his sort of general perspective was, 
Yeah, you know, corporate America has really gotten a really good deal and they've really had kind of all the bargaining power um, or all the market power here. Uh, and and labor has really been squeezed and the pendulum might be swinging back here now where labor is, you know, going to need or going to demand, need and, and demand a fairer share. And uh, the consumer is not necessarily going to be able to take that on with higher prices that the corporations are going to have to tighten their belts here a little bit and say, you know what? We had a really good run, but we're going to have to run leaner going forward than we did before. What's your reaction to that thesis? I, I generally agree with the thesis, with the exception of I don't think corporates are going to willingly take the pain. I think the corporate yeah, not that willingly. I'll probably kick and scream, but yeah. <laughs> you and I run businesses. Are you willingly going to pay, take some pain? Because I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, let's kind of unpack this from a uh, from an empirical standpoint. So um, we we are very much in the camp that. The labor has bargaining power in this in this business cycle, and that and that's very clearly evident by sort of the spread between labor demand and labor supply. So uh, going back to that list of uh, resilient U.S. economy features, and 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 you know, in terms of um, you know, number ten was labor hoarding in terms of why the U.S. economy has remained so resilient. So I kind of walk you through this chart to kind of get to the punchline here. So at the top panel here, we show the total size of the labor force at 168 million. Um, that number is still below its uh, its 20, 20, 2009 to 2019 trend. Uh, we long ago recovered the 2009 to 2019 trend in gross domestic income. So that ultimately means that there's a lot more cash circulating around the economy to demand goods and services, but we don't have as many people to sort of um, to create those goods and services. Mm -hmm. And you could sort of see that reflected in terms of labor demand versus labor supply. Labor demand, we take that as household survey employment plus Joe's total job openings. So that number is at 170 million versus that labor supply um, uh, picture at roughly 168 million. We now have a 2.4, 2.5 million spread, positive spread in terms of labor demand relative to labor supply. And the reason that's important as it relates to, you know, kind of weight uh, workers having bargaining powers, unions, you know, which represent right around 5% of the private sector workforce, you know, have continued to having bargaining power uh, with respect to their employers is because this spread between labor supply and labor demand has historically been correlated to the private sector employment cost index on a year over year basis. And so we are now at 4.6%, which is, you know, about 200 basis points north of its uh, of its longer term mean. And the reason that's, you know, that that's likely to stick there is because you're probably not going to get back to a, a safe, comfortable level uh, of, of that, you know, for an extended period of time. It could take us several more quarters before you get back to zero and perhaps below zero, which is, you know, kind of where we've long trended from from the perspective of, of labor demand relative to labor supply. So, um, by the way, this is the credible path to a soft landing that Jay Powell outlined in May or March of last year when they first started hiking, which is we're going to take some pressure out of labor market through the lens of jotes. That's the red line down here. We're going to hopefully keep employment growth continuing to grow. And that's been exactly what's happened thus far. We ultimately don't think that's going to be the, the conclusion of the story, because ultimately we still believe that there's probably going to come a period of time where corporates feel a lot of pressure to you know shed some labor, shed some, some fat from their, from their business um, um, operating expenses. And the reason we say that is because when you look at projected sales and earnings growth, particularly on the earnings growth side, uh, for this is the Russell 3000 index. So it's the broadest measure of um, you know corporate of, of, of public companies that we have um, in terms of indices uh, here in the U.S. economy. And you know we're effectively projected to go from down five percent, which is the most recent quarter. Ignore kind of Q3 because only seven companies have reported thus far. But respectively, going from down five percent to up like fifteen to twenty percent in the span of uh, the next 24 months. So there's a hockey stick recovery expected in terms of corporate profitability 
but there's not necessarily a real credible path to getting there in terms of growth likely slowing, uh, inflation maybe stabilizing in a bad way in terms of cost push inflation back on producer price or balance sheets, as opposed to you know being able to um, you know kind of push price to consumers. So to me, I think that the probability that we see kind of a one-off, maybe you know multi-month, maybe not even multi-quarter reduction in aggregate labor demand, primarily through total employment. Um, is quite high, particularly when you get into the first half of next year, and you start like, thinking about uh, some of these lofty estimates and, and how they're going to meet those, those targets. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, and I, we're going to talk more about this as we go through this presentation. But this is a great chart uh, showing these lofty estimates, right? This really rosy rebound in corporate profitability. Uh, I think for the reason you just mentioned, but I'm going to guess several other reasons, Darius. You may think those forecasts there may not materialize right now the way that the earnings uh, analysts, the analysts, are expecting them to. No, they're probably not. I mean, so again, I mean, you know, let's, you know, we, you and I talked about this in the last, uh, last episode, but, you know, let's kind of give investors kind of a, a quick summary of, of why we continue to think a recession is the modal outcome. You know, we do believe that the 10 year, three month treasury uh, yield curve is the sort of the best, you know, leading indicator for a yield curve. It's predicted eight of the late ass eight recessions. And as far back as we only have data, it's only got one uh, uh, miss. In terms of um, in terms of uh, missing in the, in the mid 1960s, so with the yield curve as deeply as inverted as it is, even when you subtract you know 40, 50 basis points of term premia uh, from the from the from the number, it's still deeply inverted. So that gives us an indication that you know the, the, the this is the recession is likely around the corner. Uh, and so when we talked about this last time, you know we sort of said, hey, look, when you go back and you sequence the date of yield curve inversions relative to the evolution of you know economic you know processes in the economy what we find is that the 13 18 month forward interval has the highest probability of seeing a recession and how we determine that is looking at the you're probably looking for the interval uh, forward in time from the date of the inversion that has the highest probability of seeing a real GDP contraction. So the percent negative ratio, the highest percent negative ratio in that particular statistic. And we also want to see the, the interval that has the highest probability of seeing the unemployment rate rise. And so that's also the 13, 18 month forward interval as indicated by the percent positive ratio for the unemployment rate. And so we know that based on this, the date of the inversion from October of 2022, we know that a recession has the highest probability of commencing, of starting sometime between November 2023 through April 2024. So you know we're not backing off that view until we until further notice. We we need to see the economy now cast itself out of this through the duration of that forecast window before we have you know we can start to say, hey, look, the economy looks like it might be soft landing. And so we ultimately still believe that we're on this pre-recession path. But that path was always going to be through and, and, and sort of carry an element of resiliency through it uh, to it as a function of all those um, uh, features that we had identified in that list. All right, Darius, uh, you are such a joy to interview for so many reasons, but one is your data facility and your ability to put together all this information and immediately jump over to the right chart in this whole sea of charts that you have to make your point. It's wonderful. But I also love the fact that you keep anticipating the question that I'm planning on asking you. So thank you for you know getting to the what I thought was going to be an unfair question, which is, okay, Darius, 
timeline wise, where do you think we are then given this 13, 18th month uh, you know, lead uh, indicator? And of course, you just you just shared this, uh, your, your thoughts there. So November 23rd through April 24th, that's pretty close. That's not too far away. No, it's um, not too far away. And real quick, can you can you pull up one last time that hope plus I chart? Yep, for sure. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's look at the X's and hope, right? Okay. So, so housing uh, is down, uh, not, not still not that much. And maybe at some point we can talk about why housing has been so resilient and, and your expectations of where the housing market is going to go through. But we can say, okay, check. Housing market no longer growing. Uh, orders. The order data uh, is also um, weak, I guess we'll say, you know, not strong. Um, uh, corporate earnings, uh, they certainly got beaten up a bit last year. Um, you can tell us sort of where we are there. Now we're, we're kind of waiting for that E in hope, right? Mm -hmm. That That's what Cantorowitz says, right? Is, hey, that's sort of the last bulwark. When that really starts rolling over, we're going to really know. Um, you just showed us a bunch of data that basically said, uh, hey, you know, jobs market is still pretty robust, right? Yeah. So how do we square the current robustness with a recession that that potentially could start in two months? Um, or are you expecting some sort of really big waterfall drop off in the jobs data? Or are we going to sort of slide ourselves into the recession from a jobs perspective? Uh, I'd be lying if I said I had a, a re reasonable basis to forecast that particular dynamic. So I'm going to withhold, you know, kind of judgment on that. But, you know, we've been in terms of what we communicated to our clients at 42 Macro is, you know, we've been pretty consistent in the camp really since about early May. Because I think last time we were um, interviewing, it was pretty clear that, you know, we were still in the aftermath of the regional banking crisis. Yep. And if you put a you know banana to my head at that particular moment in time. I would have said the early part of that that forecast to write that forecast window, you know, sooner, you know, closer to November as opposed right. to April. Now that we've gone through all that, we've now, you know we sort of now casted the data. We have a bunch of uh, now cast systems that we use to to, to analyze um, you know the evolution of the U.S. economy. It's pretty clear that that was a blip on the radar. And so you put a banana to my head today, I'd say it's probably going to be the latter end of that six month uh, interval in terms of that forecast interval. So uh, it's our view that. You know, this economy probably still has resiliency in some legs, at least through year and probably to the early part of next year. And if I had to guess, I mean, all we're really doing is guessing because I don't believe we have a real foundational basis to, to forecast this as economists, which is, I don't know if we, we, we can know if it's going to be, you know, kind of a sharp slide into negative, you know, type payroll prints, or if it's going to be a gradual decay into just a, you know, slower and slower, um, you know, business cycle process. I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that the, the interval that has the highest probability of seeing a recession commence is sometime between November 1st of 2023 and April 30th of 2024. And I happen to believe it's going to be closer to the latter end of that particular cycle. But we don't have to guess, right? You know, that's one thing I think uh, Cantoritz and I share uh, in common is that, you know, we have plenty of statistics that we can analyze on a, on a, on a, on a you know consistent basis, day after day, week after week, month after month, to give us an indication, okay, is it starting to look like this or is it starting to look like that? Um, so this uh, snap, this picture here, I'll show you two pictures, or actually three quick pictures um, to kind of summarize our, our, our general thoughts on the labor market right now. One, the labor market remains quite resilient. Uh, when you look at the growth rate of private sector employment, and what we take is the mean of household and establishment surveys, uh, and then took three-month annualized rate of change there so that we're not overly you know, influencing our, SM, our, our assessment of the labor market on the birth, death, adjustment, et cetera, et cetera. So we're currently growing at 2.3% on a three-month annualized uh, basis uh, in, in, in terms of August payrolls, in terms of August total employment for the private sector. Private sector wages are growing at 3.9% three-month annualized. We're currently flat three-month annualized in terms of aggregate weekly hours, 
So private sector labor income, when you productize those features, is still growing at 6.2%. That number is still north of its pre-COVID trend, and it's consistent with the growth rate of nominal employee compensation that we get out of the PC statistics um, that's currently tracking at 5.8% through Methangulize. So the labor market is resilient from that perspective. And then it's also resilient for what we call our, our 42 macro Fab Five recession signaling indicators. So you and I are old enough to remember the Fab Five from, from Michigan, um, you know, the, the, the basketball team, <laughs> the infamous basketball team uh, from Michigan. So uh, from my perspective, these are the five most important leading indicators that you can sort of watch to confirm whether or not you're very you're on the precipice of a, a recession, particularly as it relates to that E in the hope plus I framework uh, that we have been discussing. And so the first um, indicator is the University of Michigan Employment Survey. Uh, that number uh, came out, I want to say on Friday, it slowed pretty sharply to 74. And we're now just narrowly above the median level, the median value that the indicator has exhibited at the start of recessions. So now that's kind of, you know, it's got a yellow light, if you if you want to say, if you if you will, from the perspective of this indicator. Okay. Uh, that one we call knocking on recession's door, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't necessarily say knocking on recession's door, but if it's an Uber, it's like a DoorDash driver. It's like pulling up, you know, in front of your house. It hasn't really got to your door yet with the food, uh, but it's close okay. to your house. And maybe it's, you know, but, but he's close. You're, you're, you're getting your change out to pay him. Yeah, okay. Exactly, 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 you know. So um, labor differential survey, nowhere near there, you know, still still at the Western Round waiting on your order. Um, in terms of continuing claims, total labor force ratio, we analyze that statistic on, on a trailing on a three month annualized growth rate of change basis. And what we find is that, you know, we're currently tracking it down 9.7% through month annualized. And we're well shy of the level, the, 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 the rate that we typically exhibit at the start of recession. So still getting a, a green check mark there. We look at cyclical unemployment as the fourth feature. Uh, we're down 6.2% through month annualized. That's um, you know north or, or south of the level that we've historically exhibited prior to recession. And really, the only indicator of this particular um, Fab Five recession signaling indicator kit uh, that's actually confirming, hey, the, the DoorDash guy is banging on your door, you know, waiting for you to get out of the shower so you can hang your food. You know, it's, it's, it's temporary employment. Uh, we're actually contracting at minus 10.5 percent on a three-month annualized rate of change basis. So right now, one out of the five are signaling, you know, recession. You know, a very the probability of a near-term recession is extremely high. I'd say another one out of the five is saying, you know, kind of getting parking in front of your house is if we're going back to this DoorDash analogy, parking <laughs> in front of your house. And then the other three are, you know, maybe they're somewhere between waiting at the restaurant or picking up your order and starting to get into your neighborhood. So um, it's given it's telling us that the resilient U.S. economy thing likely has legs, at least through the lens of these data. And then finally, the, the third chart I take uh, as it relates to the labor market, it's just continue, jobless, continue, uh, jobless, initial jobless claims and continuing jobless claims. We analyzed you know, those, those, those statistics on a uh, three-month annualized rate of change basis. And initial jobless claims, trailing four-week moving average is minus 18% on a three-month uh, annualized rate of change basis. We are well shy of the level that we've historically exhibited uh, heading into recession. We're at minus 9% continuing jobless claims, well shy of the level that we've historically exhibited uh, heading into recession on a median basis, um, you know, going back with data going back to the mid-1960s. So, um, you know, we have a lot of confidence that the U.S. economy is not close to a recession currently based on the, what we find to be the best leading indicators for that. So that's why we continue to say, hey, look, we know that there's this six month interval that says this has the highest probability of a recession starting. Now, when we say starting, you know, it's the beginning of the recession. It's not like right. recession's headline news. By the way, for everyone listening and watching at home, these red bars show up like six to nine to 12 months after the recession starts. So like, you know, you know we're not gonna, NBER is not gonna tell you on, let's say the recession starts on April 1st. It's not going to say on April 2nd, hey, there's a red bar here. 
you know, right. <laughs> so, it's going to tell you on February 1st of the following year, the following year. Yeah, you'll yeah. learn that you'll see the red bar in like 2025. So uh, if we're right on that forecast. So this is why it's so important to be Bayesian throughout this entire process and really just every day as an investor to constantly be refreshing the same models, analyzing the same statistics so that you can notice big changes in the conditions of these, you know, these indicators so that you can actually make informed decisions as an investor, as opposed to what I think a lot of folks are doing, which is sort of getting swayed to and fro by whoever has the sexiest narrative at the time. Exactly. And I'm so glad that you you, you talked about that and keep the charts up here for a second, if you will, too, because um, I think that that understandably people have heard, listened to lots of people like you and many of the other people that have had this channel that, hey, the likelihood, the probability of a recession is is quite high. Right. And so they immediately go, OK, recession coming, got to hunker down, got to, you know, go short the market. Right. And you've got to be really cautious um, about uh, taking too extreme a position based upon a general thesis. To your point, you've got to watch the data to tell you where you are in the story. And right. And so somebody who heard the recession is probable you know, narrative in January. Uh, if they got really aggressively, say, short the market, <laughs> you know, if they sat out the market, they missed the gains. If they got aggressively short the market, they had a horrible year, right? Um, and so it's really important to look at the indicators like Darius is showing here. And um, uh, I'm really glad you brought these up, Darius, because, you know, what I what I take from Kantrowitz's framework is, you know, those, those four dominoes, H-O-P-E, they all have to fall before the recession hits. Uh, we've seen weakness in the in the first three dominoes. We've been watching the the final E domino closely, and you listen to headlines sometimes about layoffs or you know other things that are going on, and you can really convince yourself, okay, now 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 this is really where things are rolling over. You've just walked us through a lot of data that suggests actually really not quite. I mean, it's not wobbling that much yet. And so to your point, you are even though you've got this window of probability where you think the recession could could happen, you are changing your your expectations and saying, I'm, I'm going to expect it to happen on the end of that window now because I'm not seeing the weakness that, I'm not seeing enough weakness in this data to, to indicate that this is going to happen in the next month or two, right? Brilliant, so, brilliant, brilliant. Super useful. And if I can just go back, I want to, I want to, I want to really murder this DoorDash analogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're we're not there yet. We're 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 not looking like the the jobs uh, the E domino is going to fall over immediately, you know, anytime, super soon, and and then let the recession commence. But for your Fab Five here, all of these show that Uber the the DoorDash driver is in his car. Right. He's in varying degrees of proximity to your household. But in, in pretty much every one of these uh, these data sets here, he is driving or at least preparing to drive in your direction. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't we don't see any one of these that's going off in the other direction that leads us to say, oh, my gosh, you know, forget the recession thesis. These are all somewhat to some degree supportive of, of a continued weakening of the jobs market. 100%, my friend. And you're you're spot on to kind of use that analogy. And, and one uh, final thing I'll say about this, uh, this particular set of analysis is that we don't need all five to confirm. What we're doing as Bayesian investors, data-driven you know, investors, and, and what we do to help our institutional clients, our retail clients, our RA clients across the world, and you know, really across the world, you know, very geographically well-represented in terms of our client base, what we're trying to do is give them, bludgeon them over the head with the preponderance of data. Mm -hmm. You know, you're never going to have every component of your process signaling the same thing in every time. In fact, I would argue 2023, much like 2019, has been one of those years where 
different components of your process were screaming loudly, very different things. Very different things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you sort of needed to have, you know, what I could say, you know, when those things, when those, those confusing moments tend to happen, we tend to lean on our quantitative risk management signals. And our quantitative risk management signals, primarily our the weather model and our global macro risk matrix, have kept us on the right side of markets primarily uh, for for most of the year. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, at the beginning of uh, a beginning of January, uh, if someone kind of you know got really wedded to the recession playbook or the recession narrative, probably you know may have shorted stocks in, in that moment of time. That's exactly when we covered all of our shorts. Right. Like I wish I covered all my shorts back in October. I had a terrible Q4, you know, kind of, you know, thinking some of these, um, you know, thinking some of this stuff would happen sooner rather than later. But we ultimately allowed our, we just went back to the bases and said, hey, look, let's just rely on our, on our signaling tools to actually help us guide us through this kind of very confusing time in financial markets. And ultimately it's, it's worked. It's, it's done us a great, uh, great job. And it's even relative to, you know, I went back and I listened to our previous interview. And one thing that, you know, if you sort of just listened to the interview and said, didn't hear anything else I said since then until, um, you know, until September, then you would have thought I got very wrong on bonds. Um, you know, you recall that we at the, the end of the interview, we were talking about how our systematic uh, portfolio construction process had us allocated to fixed income. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that process pivoted literally a week or two after that discussion to taking us out of fixed income. You know, in fact, we got very bearish on bonds and very bullish on stocks, uh, I want to say in the first or second week of May. And you're talking about TLTs down almost nine, 10, 9, 10% since then. You're talking about the S&Ps up 9, 10% uh, since then. So this is one another lesson I want to share uh, with your, your viewers is to make sure that, you know, it's uh, you, you financial podcasts, particularly the good ones like Wealthion, do a phenomenal job of helping aggregate investor consensus, helping teach investors process, helping expose investors to new data sets, and, and ultimately making us all better investors. But there's one thing that I don't think that podcasts do, which is, you know, kind of take you from point A to point B, right? Like if you've heard me speak on Wealthy on four, five, six months ago, and I said, I like bonds, but guess what? If two weeks after that, I say, we don't like bonds, short bonds, sell bonds and buy stocks, then you, if you miss that message, then you're kind of, you're exposing yourself to a lot of financial market risk if you're not really, you know, kind of doing your due diligence as an investor. So please make sure you're, if you're going to be listening to folks like myself talk on these podcasts and inform and educate you, just make sure that you're following along with what they're saying along as so you can ultimately um, kind of infuse their process into yours. That's a great point. And, and Darius, this interview will be no exception. At the end of every interview, I encourage people to go follow the, the, the speaker themselves and you know ask you to tell people where they can go. Um, and so folks, as Darius is saying, if you're going to say, I really like what Speaker X is saying, like, oh, I really like what Darius said in this uh, interview. And I, I want I want to, you know, take some of that into action in my own portfolio. Well, then make sure you are following <laughs> that, that expert. So in case they do change their mind based upon what happens in the market, you know, and aren't, aren't operating on old information. Um, also, this, this, one final thing. Yeah. Not only do you know that they changed their mind, but I think it's also helpful to know why they changed their mind. Absolutely. Exactly. It could be something that may jive with your process in terms of your investment horizon. It may be something that they may be changing their mind tactically. They may be changing their mind, you know, fundamentally from a longer term perspective. You need to also know why they're changing their mind as well. So it does behoove you to, uh, you know, kind of do a little bit more due diligence, you know, when you're hearing talking heads like myself, um, you know, kind of preach on these podcasts. Absolutely. And and Darius, you're you're kind of giving uh, maybe maybe an unintentional great plug for um, Wealthion's Saturday show, which is our weekly market recap. I love Uh, that. I I do it with Lance uh, Roberts every every Saturday. Um, You know, Lance does, I think, a very good job of um, giving people transparent clarity into the thought process and the decision making of a portfolio allocator. 
as things are changing, you know, on the ground. And, and a lot of times, you know, he has to remind people, look, we don't have the luxury of trading the markets that we want, mm -hmm. right? We have to trade the markets that we have. And so we have to be looking at these indicators. And even if, you know, even if we have a very like uh, strong conviction that at some point something's going to happen, like the Fed is going to pivot or there's going to be a recession or whatever, right? Great. But the market may not get that memo for a long time and may head in an entirely different direction. And so, you know, if, if you're in the business of, of being a good financial steward of your wealth, your client's wealth, you may have to adopt a, uh, a nearer term strategy that uh, is inconsistent, maybe even flies in the face of your longer term conviction. But you, you, you can't let that long term conviction uh, guide all of your portfolio allocation decision making uh, decision making because you could get completely wiped out while the market ignores your thesis until your thesis actually matters, right? You're sort of nodding as I'm saying this, but of course, this is what you do on a daily basis. So this is the world you live in. Absolutely. This is uh, institutional finance, folks. <laughs> we don't have the luxury <laughs> of trading the markets we want or having the clients we want. We have the clients we have and the markets we have. And so we ultimately have to do a better job of you know learning from our own mistakes and implementing the right tools and the right processes to kind of see us through some of these more challenging, difficult times. You know, not every year is going to be as hard as 2023 or 2019, you know, or I would say 2007 was pretty hard as well. Um, you know, there are going to be years like, in my opinion, 2009 was pretty easy. You know, <laughs> 2020 sure. was pretty easy. You know, like, you know, 2021 was pretty easy. There are years, in my opinion, 2022 was pretty easy, you know, at least until uh, Q4 of last year. But, you know, I mentioned one thing earlier, I think it's important to go back to because, you know, we go back to the fundamental stuff. There's one uh, final thing I did want to hit on in terms of process. Sure in terms of, you know, kind of putting guardrails around, you know, what it is that we think as investors from a fundamental viewpoint standpoint, you know, whether it's our global macro risk matrix, which is one of the most powerful tools, we, you know, we've designed here at 42 Macro in terms of helping investors stay on the right side of risk, or it's a, some other tool. It could be your own tool, your own technical indicators, your own market, you know, technician. It doesn't matter. I think it's just very important to do one thing and one thing only every time you wake up in the morning. Separate your research from your risk management. Your research is what you think is going to happen in the world. Your risk management is what is happening in the world and how you should be uh, uh, sort of disposed as an investor. What's your investment disposition? And so what we use this tool to do and, and, and what this global macro risk matrix is, is we're scoring 42 of what we think you know, are the most important markets in the world to track through the lens of our volatility adjusted momentum signal. And that volatility adjusted momentum signal, based on the condition of that signal per each indicator, it's we've historically back tested each indicator through the lens of our what we call our grid regime process. And we ultimately assign a score per each indicator to a particular grid regime. And what we ultimately try to do with this process is say, hey, which of the four grid regimes is getting the most love from this collection of 42 markets on a daily basis? And what okay, we found great. is that, yeah, since since the beginning of the year, really since um, Q4 of last year, and I ignored the initial part of phase of it, but we, you know, we, had, we were smart enough to pivot to it in January. Since Q4 of last year, We've been in a risk on regime. We started in Goldilocks going back to um, kind of, uh, you know, d December of last year. And then we transitioned to reflation, you know, going back to um, going back to kind of, um, you know, May, I want to say like March or April uh, of this year. And as long as we are in one of those two risk on regimes, Goldilocks or reflation, as an investor, you need to be buying the dip in risk assets. You need to be leaning pro-cyclically from a factor tilt selection standpoint until proven otherwise, until one of the risk off regimes pops up and rears his ugly head and becomes what we call the top down or the dominant market regime. But that hasn't happened yet. It had a cup of coffee or really kind of we had a um, threat. It threatened to transition to what we call uh, inflation, which is a risk off regime going back to yep. a few weeks ago. But it didn't happen. 
And so guess what? I'm still bullish because the markets are telling me to be bullish, irrespective of that expectation for a recession to commence sometime between November and April. The recession may not commence sometime between November 8 and April. Remember, that's a forecast. And if that forecast is wrong, we will still have put ourselves in a position to make money because we're ultimately respecting the wisdom of the crowd and respecting the wisdom of our quantitative risk management signals. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Great. I, I want to just, I, I, I want to um, compare what you just said with what technical analyst Sven Henrik, who was on this channel a couple of weeks ago, said, which which was very much the same thing, Darius. And, and basically, you know, Sven said, look, I can, I can talk all day long about uh, the macro and fundamental reasons why I think this market is overvalued and the economy is, you know, going to slow down from here and a recession is due. And in fact, we should have a, you know, kind of a, 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 a reckoning to, you know, remove some of the really unsustainable um, you know, elements about uh, the, the asset bubbles that we built and, you know, parts of the economy that have been oversubsidized and all that type of stuff. And he said, um, but I got to be bullish. <laughs> he said, I look at the TA and it's really, really bullish right now. And until, you know, these key levels get violated, I just can't turn bear as much as my, like every fiber of my being from a macro standpoint wants to be bearish. I just can't be right now. And, uh, you know, it's not, he's saying, look, it's, it's not good or bad. It just is what it is. And so if you're an investor and your goal is to not get wiped out, or not experience losses or disappointing years uh, of returns, you got to pay attention to what's actually happening. Um, anyways, you're nodding as I'm saying this, but it's it's one of those things that I think can really frustrate the average viewer of channels like this because everybody just sort of prefers the the black and white answer and just give me the one solution and I'll just go do that, right? And sadly, especially in markets like this one, it's just not that simple. Yeah, no, it's not that simple. And I, I think we can make it simpler. And, I, you know, I, I certainly will put myself in the category of investors that probably does too much research, but that's because we have clients all across the world in different, you know, capacities and, and facets. You know, we have global fixed income investors, global, you know, multi, long, short hedge fund managers. You know, we have all these types of clients, so we kind of have to do a bunch of research. But the reality is you could sort of boil investing down to a couple of like basic principles. One, separate your research from your risk management. No matter what you think is going to happen in, mar in, in the markets, you can't put the trade on until the markets are giving you some form of confirmation right now. And if, if you're bearish as an investor, let's take it back to this, this global macro risk matrix. The markets aren't giving you confirmation. There are 42 markets in here from the DAX to the Shanghai Composite to the Move Index to CRB raw industrials, to gold, to German break uh, break evens, to you know high yield credit spreads, to you know the yield curve. There's 42 different markets in here across you know 12 major you know kind of asset classes and sub asset classes that are all being scored. Not technically, you know, I don't necessarily believe in technical analysis. I, I think technical analysis is very useful for those who know how to do it, but I don't. I think technical analysis is actually quite hard to do at well. So I don't do technical analysis well. We just stick to the quant. And the quant, from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signals, when you amalgamate them relative to how these markets have historically traded in the past and the relationships to one another are saying it's still a risk on regime. Now, I'm going to refresh this model every single day, as you can see in this far left column, 
been refreshing this model day after day after day. Daily, after day. yep. It's start at 42 macro and we will refresh it day after day after day after day until I'm in the dirt. And, you know, we will keep refreshing <laughs> it because I'm sure my 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 analysts will, will continue refreshing it in my in my honor. But the reality is until this, mar- this until we go from a risk-on regime, go from a risk-on regime, we're currently in reflation, to a risk-off regime, which is inflation or deflation, you need to be buying the dip, leaning pro-cyclically until proven otherwise. All right, great. Um, well, look. So, Darius, um, I'm looking at my list of questions here for you. We just got there. we just got done with question bullet number one. Um, so, we've got a whole bunch more to turn through. Here. I got all day, brother. Let's do it. No, this is great. Thanks. Um, all right. Well, um, trying to think of which one to go next. Um, l- l- let me. I, I want to ask you about interest rates. Uh, so, we're going to talk about that in just a second. But real quick, I want you to respond if you can to a a, a quote of yours. Um, so we've talked about your your thoughts of recession um, in timing, which thank you for offering that. Um, this is going to be a little bit wider view, um, but here's a quote that you put out recently. Navigating the deepening fourth turning crisis over the next decade, approximate decade, will be the greatest challenge we face in our lifetime yeah. as investors. So, um, I mean, you and I have just spent a lot of time talking about we got to trade the markets the way they're trading today. Right. Um, but you seem to have, you know, a, a, a long term macro outlook that is concerned, maybe is a good way to describe it. <laughs> so so and I know that you you you're a fan of Neil Howe and I, I absolutely am, too. Um, and for those watching, Neil Howe is the demographer that that has the uh, the, the framework, uh, the fourth turning, which well, imagine most people have, have watched my interview with him. But if you haven't. Uh, the fourth turning is basically a period in society, usually measured in 20-ish years or so, where the status quo falls apart and is replaced by a new cycle, right? Um, so as you look to that period, and obviously seem to be a bit concerned about it, um, what is it about what you see ahead that makes you say that this may indeed be the greatest challenge that we face in our lifetimes as investors? Yeah. So a uh, shout out to my former colleague, Neil Howe. I obviously learned a lot from him in terms of, uh, you know, trying to implement uh, some of his uh, some of his seminal findings and, and research into what we do here at, at 42 Macro. And and what I meant by greatest challenge we face as investors, I think it's going to be challenging for not the obvious reasons, like bad stuff is happening because bad stuff will happen for sure. We know that total war is you know, potential uh, risk. You know, we obviously have all sorts of um, you know, negative outcomes in the, in the economy. And, and what we did in our, in our most recent macro scattering report presentation, which we put up uh, monthly for our, our clients, what we tried to do is actually add some empirical analysis to, to Neil's framework, which is, okay, let's look at a compendium and a series of indicators across the economy that we all know to be very relevant for you know, predicting the dispersion within and across asset markets and try to understand how do these, you know, uh, you know, sort of statistics evolve through the context of a fourth turning, throughout a fourth turning, and also how are they, you know, what's the baseline for those statistics during a fourth turning relative to the baseline outside of a fourth turning in the first, second, and third turnings? And so, you know, you know, we're not going to give away the, you know, that's some brand new research we put up for our clients, so we're not going to give away the, the kind of the, the, the open the full kimono on that particular uh, uh, presentation. But there is two key conclusions that I think investors need to understand as it relates to this big challenge that we all face as investors which is there's a lot of bad stuff's going to happen, but I think you have to be extremely bullish because of it. And the reason you have to be extremely bullish because of it, because, you know, one of the key takeaways from this kind of deep dive analysis is about 30 or 40 slides and, and you know, of empirical evidence, you know, kind of taking data back to the 1800s and trying to understand again, how these cycles have evolved throughout four turnings and relative to the baseline of non-four turnings. And one of the key conclusions of that, that deep dive study is that government's going to get a lot bigger. 
like a lot bigger, way bigger than the CBO thinks, way bigger than Stan Druckenmiller thinks, way, way bigger. And as a function of the, how much bigger the government's going to get, we are going to struggle to capitalize the fiscal coffers of the United States of America if we don't see some change in Fed policy or see some change in regulatory policy, which we happen to think we're going to see both. And now we can unpack why uh, after I make this point. So what I'm showing here on this particular chart are the shares of the marketable treasury market um, you know, that are, are kind of um, owned by various cohorts of investors. So the blue line here shows the Federal Reserve at 20%, uh, obviously in decline. The red line shows U.S. commercial banks at 16% in decline as well. The black line shows foreign central banks, uh, which have you know, been in decline secularly since going back to 2008, 2009 uh, at 15%. And so that leaves us with the residual, the private sector, which now account for half of total marketable treasury securities. We were at the end of 2021, right around 35, 36% of total marketable treasuries outstanding in terms of you know our share of the, the total. We are now 50% of the total because each of these other main cohorts are selling them to us. So that's a problem because we are private sector investors. We need return to take on the units of risk. And you know, these folks are all for various reasons, price insensitive buyers. Fed buys for you know uh, economic reasons, the commercial banks buys for either economic reasons or regulatory reasons. Um, then the commercial the foreign central banks buy for economic reasons as well, in terms of you know trying to protect their currencies um, from devaluation. Uh, and, and so you know that's you know, and so in our view, this this is a one of the most important charts that you can burn into your brain in terms of trying to identify and understand where treasury yields are headed in the absence of you know uh, financial repression and you know uh, you know particular move towards large scale asset purchases permanent large scale asset purchases permanent yield curve control uh here in the US treasury market by the fed and uh, we do believe uh, those are very high probabilities um investors should expect uh, financial repression because banks have ample capacity to lend to the treasury market and so what i'm showing here in this top panel is the um the total amount of uh, uh, treasury and agency securities on, on on bank balance sheets, on commercial bank balance sheets, um, relative to their uh, to available bank credit, and it's around twenty four percent of the total. Now you go back to the last four turning in the in the late nineteen forties, we were at sixty four percent of total bank credit. Now bank credit is this wonky statistic that they don't even really keep anymore. Uh, it's as only as far back as we can get the data. But when you sort of relate a relationship between bank credit and total assets. We can understand that at currently at 18% of total assets right now, in terms of treasury and agency securities, that ratio, when we apply the same, you know, kind of mean, structural mean in terms of bank credit to bank assets, we understand that 50% of commercial bank balance sheets back in 1947 were in treasury and agency securities. And so wow. we know this is where we're headed. We're headed for something that looks like financial oppression through the lens of commercial bank balance sheets. And we're probably looking for something that looks like a permanent move towards yield curve control and um, and, um, and 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 you know just permanent large scale asset purchase programs uh, by the Federal Reserve. In my opinion, you're talking about Venezuela, you're talking about Argentina, you're talking about Turkey, Zimbabwe. There's so many historical corollaries of what happens to stock markets, to currency markets, to fixed income markets when you cost the point of no return from the perspective of burgeoning public debts and public deficits. And we are very much headed towards that in terms of the key conclusions of that analysis. Wow. Okay. So that is laying down a pretty big uh, prediction there, uh, pretty big gauntlet. Um, so I, I, I just want to ask this question to make sure I heard you right. Um, so you see potential for in the next, I'll be generous, 10 to 15 years, uh, the U.S. To, to head down the path of an Argentina or a Venezuela 
meaning do a, a aggressive yield curve control uh, on its debt and basically sacrificing the purchasing power of its currency in the process. They have no choice, Adam. We have no choice. This is all part and parcel of the fourth turning. So I'll share what I uh, was our the last uh, elements of the of the analysis that I feel comfortable sharing here because I don't want right. to. Just, it, 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 and, and by the way, so if somebody goes and subscribes to Forty Two Macro, they can obviously get the full enchilada, correct? Well, everything we've ever published, including this presentation. And one thing I will say, you know, this is a, a tiny plug for our business here. We publish what I think is some of the world's top institutional macros management you know, resources, you know, we have, you name a, a major hedge fund or a major investor, they're probably a client because I've been spent my, 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 my entire career on global Wall Street. We sell that same information that we sell to them, folks who can afford to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for the resource at the same price that we sell it to everyone else, which is only hundred dollars a month. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, we want to democratize this information. I could easily say, hey, no, I'm going to charge $10,000 a quarter for right. this but we're not going to do that because we ultimately uh, believe in our mission of democratizing uh, finance. But uh, in the con you know, in the spirit of respecting our paying clients, I'm going to show you one uh, or two more charts from this uh, particular section of our, our most recent scouting report. And so the first one uh, is this uh, is this uh, chart on uh, in inflation um, in terms of how we actually get to the yield curve control and the and the you know and the and the, and the Zimbabweification of America and, and its financial markets, particularly the equity market, which partially, I think you got to be extremely bullish on stocks. You got to be extremely bullish on, on Bitcoin heading into this fourth turning. And a lot of folks would see this presentation and think the opposite is true until they realize Uncle Sam has to get his money somehow. And the only way relief valve, the only escape valve uh, for us as investors is to ultimately uh, um, lever up and buy financial assets. So uh, here in this chart where we show uh, our analysis on headline CPI, so as I mentioned, we performed a, a deep dive empirical study with data going all the way back to 1800 for a wow. compendium of, of you know economic statistics in terms of trying to understand how they evolve throughout a fourth turning. And as you can see, inflation tends to spike uh, in, in a fourth turning. Uh, you tend to see, you know, and we're actually, you know, kind of, you know, par for the course here uh, early in this fourth turning here. Uh, but we also see inflation tends to be about double uh, on a median basis relative to its baseline. And so if, let's say the baseline of inflation is somewhere around 2% uh, inflation, 2.5% inflation on a headline basis. Here, we're talking about 4 to 5% inflation on a in terms of doubling, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the baseline relative to four turnings. And that's consistent, Adam, with what we talked about in our previous um, discussion, which is our secular inflation model. Our mm -hmm. second inflation model, you know, we taught we built this model back in um, in, um, in 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 the beginning of, of 2020-22, trying to get investors to understand that, hey, look, this isn't just a transitory spike in inflation. It's going to feel transitory, but there's elements of this this transitory move in inflation that are going to be persistent. And the model's still saying the same thing here almost two years later. Um, so this this model is effectively arguing that core PCE inflation is likely to trend 50 to 100 percent higher throughout this decade. And now that sounds like a lot. It's kind of a headline. But the reality is we're talking about going from wow. a, trend, a trend rate of 1.6 to a trend rate of 2.5 to 3.2% uh, in this decade based on the current evolution of these features in the model that have all been proven to be correlated or co-integrated uh, with inflation, with the underlying trend in inflation in academic research. And so if this model is correct and this analysis is correct, we know we're headed for an era of higher inflation. Well, the only way we can get to Zimbabwefication and yield curve control and stocks, you know, was it was it money printer go burr and, and stocks go up, <laughs> number go up. What are, I don't know what these Gen Z kids uh, say these days, but uh, God bless them. <laughs> um, until we get the only way, the only credible path to getting to that outcome is through capitulation by the Fed. 
So one of our big calls um, for this, you know, from a longer term standpoint as a strategic asset allocator is to understand that the Fed will capitulate on what Jay Powell talked about at Jackson Hole this year, which is quadrupling down on this concept of 2% inflation. Fine, sure, whatever. As long as the unemployment rate's at 3.7%, you can quadruple down on whatever you want. But if the unemployment rate is at 6.7%, there will be no quadrupling down on 2% inflation. Yeah. You're going to have to pivot to something that looks like three and accept, you know, something that looks like three and a half to four, in our opinion, you know, as we go, you know, progress throughout this decade. And that has significant implications for portfolio construction, uh, Adam. So, stocks and bonds are inversely correlated when inflation is 2% or below. But when you get into the three to five percent range, is what our models effectively arguing we're going to be trending at, um, you know, throughout this decade. You know, again, it's not all going to happen at once. We're talking about a decade plus long empirical study. If we, if this study is correct, you know, from this starting point, you should expect positive correlation between stocks and bonds and limited diversification from the perspective of stocks and bonds in your portfolio. And if you don't have a process to figure that out and ultimately do something about that from a longer term perspective, you will struggle in an environment where. S&P looks like Venezuela when it, when things are fine, but S&P looks like, I don't know, the collapse of the Weimar Republic when things aren't fine. Yep. Yep. Oh, so super fascinating. First, I, I got to just remind folks what we're talking about here is your outlook now for the next decade plus. So yep. this isn't necessarily a call for what's going to happen for the remainder of 2023. Um, and, and certainly if we go into a recession in 2024, um, you may have very different positioning than you're going to have on average for the next you know decade plus ahead from here. Um, super, super fascinating. Um, I get if we expect higher inflation to go, um, inflation to be higher on a secular basis going forward from here, uh, that equities probably are a good place to be. Um, equity markets tend to, you know, well, they, they generally tend to move higher and nominally, at least in periods of inflation. Um, Bonds. Let's talk about bonds for a second. Uh, so, if you expect massive central bank intervention, then you know one might say, okay, well that means lower rates, right? The central banks are intervening. They're gonna, you mentioned the the bank balance sheets have a lot of room to to invest more in treasuries and things like that. Um, so that will obviously, you know, lower rates would would raise bond prices. Um, now, somebody might say, well, in a secularly higher inflationary era, uh, bond investors are going to demand higher rates to compensate for that inflation. So what do you think is more likely to happen with bonds? I noticed you, you kind of went immediately to being, being bullish stocks and Bitcoin. You didn't say bonds. Um, I'm just curious, where, where do bonds do you think? How, how do you think they perform in this environment that you're projecting out? Well, a great question, Adam. So it's really, it's about getting the Fed to go from quadrupling down 2% inflation as their target to accepting three and perhaps higher than three on a sustained basis, yep. because ultimately that's what the public debt and deficit situation is going to demand. And ultimately you, you go back, think about the UK LDI crisis last September. In my opinion, that's a precursor to what we're likely to experience as probably one of the, the, fat, the final catalysts to getting the Fed, you know, to kind of get off its high horse and ultimately jump back into the kiddie pool in terms of capitalizing uh, Uncle Sam for us. And the reason I mm -hmm. say that is because as an investor, you have to be extreme. Based on everything I just said about inflation, the fourth turning, financial repression, you have to be very concerned if you've got a lot of bonds in your portfolio and you're expecting to hold those bonds over for an extended period of time in terms of you know locking in duration and all this stuff. Because yeah. to me, that sort of misses the key conclusion of what where the starting point is with respect to the bond market. We are priced to an incredible amount of perfection not relative to all the risks that I just highlighted for the bond market, 
just relative to a standard business cycle process. And so what I'm showing in this particular chart here is um, in, the, in the shaded area curve, we show uh, the 10-year um, the treasury term premium, which is the excess return you get as an investor for locking in your money for an extended period of time, as opposed to rolling over T-bills for that same duration. You know, what's right. the statistical, um, um, very wonky kind of statistical concept, but ultimately it's effectively saying, based on the Fed's model, that we're kind of at minus 21 basis points in terms of term premium. Well, we the mean for term premium, as far back as we have the data since the early 1960s, is 152 basis points. So right there, if we just go back to the mean of term premium, which is very likely to uh, very likely to be the case because term premium, generally speaking, are correlated with inflation because there's a couple of things that inflation does to the economy, high levels of inflation do, which is it causes more volatility in inflation and it causes more volatility in, in nominal and real economic growth. And if you have more volatility in the nominal and real economic growth, you by definition have to have higher term premium to account for that because okay. it makes it difficult to project the the, 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 the policy rate uh, on a go forward basis. So we think term premium are headed higher. Let's just say they go back to their to their to their longer term mean. They've gone as high as you know five six hundred basis points wide going back to the late seventies and eighties. But well, you know I don't think that's a the most likely scenario. Let's just take them back to the long term mean. So you're talking about I don't know one hundred seventy five ish basis points on top of the ten year today. So that gets you to about six percent. Let's get you to um, look, look at inflation expectations. They're very neatly priced around two, two and a quarter percent. And this is both looking at uh, market implied inflation expectations when you look at break evens, but also in terms of uh, model implied inflation expectations, looking at the Cleveland Fed's uh, models. We're, again, we're neatly tucked around two and a quarter percent. Well, if we're talking about you know, going back to our secular inflation model, let's just use the high end of that estimate range. We're talking about three, three-ish percent core PC inflation on a trend basis. You have to slap another 50 basis points on top of that to get to headline inflation. You're talking about you know, another 75 to 100, 125 basis points of, 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 um, of bond market back, uh, of yields backing up on a nominal basis to, uh, to appropriately account for the level of inflation that we might experience uh, over the next decade. So you're talking about right there, when you put on term premium, to a regular level, to a normal level, and you have to use, um, you know, you you slap our, uh, our inflation model and our inflation analysis into the bond market. You're talking about six to seven percent nominal treasury yields. My goodness, can, can we can we afford six to seven percent nominal treasury yields, Adam, as a, as an economy? I Would love it, how you're intimating again the question that I was about to ask you. I mean, I would say no. No, no. The answer is hell no in part of my language. And so this is why I say enter Federal Reserve, enter financial repression. We are going to have to implement yield curve control at some point in this decade. We're going to have to financially repress our commercial banks into buying more and more of this stuff and this, this treasury paper, and some will call it toilet paper by the end of the decade, into their balance sheets. Then that's very positive for you know things that aren't tethered down and 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 anchored down in terms of financial asset speculation. Now you might not be getting a great return on a real basis, but it's sure going to be a lot better than the return you're going to get sitting here as a frog being boiled alive in a pot of water in right. the bond market. That and that's kind of the key takeaway from that analysis. So again, um, you know, I, I sound like a very colorful, bright, educated guy, and I certainly am. But I highly right. recommend folks, even if they don't want to stay customers of 42 Macro for an extended period of time. Just sign up for a month, download the presentation, watch the webcast, download the charts, and keep them by your desk for the next decade and reference them when we're talking about this stuff going forward. Uh, uh, that is amazing. And yes, I highly recommend anybody that has any marginal interest in this, go do that. It's, as Darius said, it's not, not much money, especially relative to- A lot of money you might save as an investor. Exactly. House. That's the whole point. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, all right. And Darius, as a reminder, when we get to the very end of this uh, conversation, uh, which we're not going to get to yet, because I still have more questions for you. Um, I'll Very tell well. you, I'll let you tell people exactly how they can go sign up for 42 Macro. Um, all right. Uh, OK, so in this world, now I'll, I'll hop off bonds in just a second. Um, in this world where, yes, you know, hell no, they, 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 we can't live in a world where treasury yields are six to seven percent. Do you have a, a, a gut guesstimate at this point where you, you think? they'll have to be like what's the level at which you think the the fed says okay i think the, the economy can sustain you know this level um if treasury yields are above the level of nominal gdp we got problems okay <laughs> right now they're not <laughs> so we don't have problems but once we start getting treasury yields to back up persistently above the level of nominal gdp that's when you start to have uh, real problems as a, as a sovereign. So um, we also understand that going back to the similar work that Ryan and Rogar performed, you know, kind of early in my career, this time mm -hmm. is different. We know that, you know, 100% debt to GDP, which we crossed a while ago, and 10% deficits of GDP tend to be a Rubicon. Now, I don't think it's going to be the same Rubicon for the world's reserve currency as it is for, I don't know, Zimbabwe, <laughs> right. but Argentina. But we do know that we're playing with fire as it relates to the evolution of the global currency system. You got the BRICS uh, system out there now, although it's not this direct hit to dollar demand globally, but at the margins, what it ultimately means, going back to that chart where we show the relative shares of, of marketable treasury debt outstanding, it just means that one cohort of buyers, which used to be around 30% of demand for treasuries, is going to go basically to zero over the, uh -huh. over the long term. And yep. so not only have we got to replace that cohort of buyers, we actually have to find more demand for treasuries because the rate of change of treasury growth, the treasury supply is going to accelerate asymptotically, not just based on CBO projections. We're saying it's going to accelerate asymptotically relative to those projections. CBO has got it going up this way. We yeah. got it falling off the page backwards based on our analysis in the fourth turning. God, that CPO chart, I'll see if I can find it and put it up on the screen here in a few seconds. Um, but it is asymptotic already. And you're basically yeah. saying your expectations are to be asymptotic Wait, off of that asymptote, <laughs> which is crazy. Wait, um, and and I, I should note on, on the day that you and I are talking, um, the uh, national debt, the U.S. Uh, federal debt just surpassed $33 trillion. Um, we added the last trillion uh, in, uh, I think we added $2.2 trillion in the past year. Yeah, uh, just in the past 12 months. So, you know, we, we are already the, 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 in that exponential phase of, of the debt mounting at, at a very visibly shocking rate uh, yeah. that the eye can see now. And that tends to be what happens in exponential uh, systems like this is, you know, basically the rule of thumb with an exponential system is once you can actually see the problem, there's no way you're going to avoid it. Like you're already on that crazy ride at that point. And Adam, we got another 10 plus years to go in this fourth turning, at least according to Neil, you know, yep. we've got a lot of this entire framework. So again, what we're trying to do is help investors prepare their portfolios for the long term. You know, we're going to be Bayesian, you know, we're going to refresh our models, refresh our systems. We're going to lean on our weather model. We're going to lean on our global macro matrix in terms of helping investors manage risk and financial markets throughout this entire process. But ultimately, just if you think about this from a strategic asset allocation perspective, you know, especially for some of you slower moving institutional RA type investors, you need to make sure that you're aware of these risks. They're not all bad risks. You know, I think the stock market's going to go up a lot. <laughs> Bitcoin's going to go up a lot. You know, bonds are going to go down a lot. They're not all bad risks. You just need to be aware of the risks and making sure that, you know, you're constantly orienting your investment posture from a strategic standpoint in association and in appreciation of these risks. Got it. Know how the rules of the game are evolving so that you can position yourself to actually benefit from them mm -hmm. wherever possible. Um, all right. I, I do want to get to your market outlook in the near term, you know, right now we're, we're looking way out. 
um, and any asset, any thoughts you have on assets in the near terms, good and bad. Um, real quickly, though, just because it's so seminal to what we've just been talking about, um, in in that fourth turning view that you just outlined, um, talk about what you think is going to happen to the U.S. dollar. Now, obviously, I think we gave away the punchline. It's going to be worth a lot less. Um, on a relative basis, how is that going to fare versus other major world currencies? I mean, it's not like there are many other players out there that we can point to and saying, oh, these guys are doing it way better. And if we're having these issues, a lot of other countries are going to be having the same ones as well. So um, obviously, you're saying probably, you know, at some point, you want to be light on dollars and heavy on assets that are going to appreciate uh, in purchasing power, or at least in preserving it. Um, but as a, as, a, as a world currency versus other world currencies, what do you expect? Yeah, fantastic question. This is something I've laid. Uh, I've lost a lot of sleep trying to think through because this is some complicated stuff to think through. Um, mm -hmm. You know, someone who spends a lot, of, you know, all day thinking about these things and all night really, I rarely sleep. <laughs> it's, this is hard. Um, the, in terms of I think about the dollar, you can sort of think about the dollar priced in two types of assets: financial assets, you know, by and large, stocks, you know, stocks, bonds, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, real estate, et cetera, et cetera. Dollar is very likely to depreciate against those assets, with the exception of you know, sovereign debt. You think about it through the lens of the currency market, that's where it gets very interesting because, again, most of the major sovereign economies, you know, particularly the Western European economies, of which very much comprise the DXY basket, those economies are very much aligned with our fourth turnings, including Japan. You know, right. the, World War II kind of was this seminal moment in time that kind of put all of our turning cycles together for a lot of the Western world and even parts of the emerging market world, if you look at places like Turkey uh, and Philippines and Brazil. Um, so we're all sort of tethered in this fourth turning together. So it's not just like we're all going to have the same problem or, we're all, you know, U.S. is going to be out here with this bad problem and everyone else is going to be benefiting from the dollar depreciation. I think if you think about where we might go from an inflation standpoint and ultimately how, this, you know, the, 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 the elements of dollar devaluation might spill over into the commodity market, this actually could lead to dollar appreciation. And the reason I say that is because the two, you know, two of the biggest, um, you know, kind of net international investment creditor economies in the world, Japan and the Eurozone primarily, are, you know, energy importers and, and food and energy importers, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't have domestic supplies of these assets. And so you think about how are they going to acquire these assets persistently in the context relative to an economy like the U.S., which is sort of coming from a starting point of a negative net international investment position, a negative current account balance, obviously a, a deeply negative uh, sovereign debt balance, which, by the way, the budget deficit is, is at a record non-war, non-recession budget deficit right now we have in the U.S. economy. And this is something that we've been calling out all year as part of our, you know, kind of, um, you know, sanguine bias on the economy. You know, so this weather model, I just really quickly, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this because, you know, I know we got to wrap up. But, you know, the, the what we're trying to do with this system is look at everything that matters as it relates to financial markets um, in terms of predicting dispersion across financial markets, growth, inflation, employment, profits, fiscal policy, liquidity, credit, interest rates, positioning, et cetera. And one thing we've been persistently harping on all year is saying, hey, look, this budget deficit is at a minus, you know, it's been somewhere around, you know, minus seven and a half to minus eight and a half percent all year. And that, that's a record non-war, non-recession budget deficit in the U.S. economy. You mentioned, ne sorry, ne never had one that high a percentage of GDP with uh, unemployment this low. Yeah, totally. <laughs> We're going to 10. <laughs> We're definitely going to go above 10. We could persistently stay there from a structural basis, um, you know, if we don't get our act together in terms of productivity, but that's impossible forecast. So I'm not going to try. Uh, so in terms of like, you know, you think about this, again, through the lens of the global currency market and the relationship between, you know, um, you know, kind of commodity importers and commodity exporters, you know, you look at a place like, uh, like uh, the Eurozone economy, for instance, its current account surplus 
has narrowed all the way down to 0.4% of GDP. That's a minus 1.7 sigma relative to the trailing 10-year uh, mean. That's a problem. You know, yep. you look at Japan, which has historically had a much wider uh, uh, current account balance, uh, current account surplus. Uh, it's a down now. It's a 2.2%. You know, if the yen goes to 200, you know, that 2.2% could be minus 2.2%. So this is why I say it's really difficult to kind of project the currency market um, with respect to, you know, kind of, um, you know, across on a cross-currency basis. I think it's much easier to say that the dollar is going to depreciate uh, relative to things like, you know, stocks and relative to things like Bitcoin. Okay. And I'm presuming you think it's going to depreciate too relative to things like food at the grocery store and gasoline and things like that, just for us, our, our lived experience in this fourth turning world that you're projecting. Mm-hmm. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, um, like I said, um, let, let's try to bring it down to kind of the next let's say six months, 12 months, whatever, um, maybe six months, uh, more, more so. And people who are saying, okay, look, um, you know, Darius is saying that, uh, you know, looks like things are going to hold together for the near term here, uh, but there's a recession lurking out there on the horizon. Maybe now it's going to hit more in the sort of April 2024 type range. Um, as I'm looking at different types of strategies or assets to consider, you know, Darius, what are some of the things at 42 Macro that you guys have your eyes most closely on here? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start by saying, our interview with Darius will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. Also, don't forget that tickets for the Wealthy and Fall Conference are still on sale at the early bird price discount of nearly 30% off the standard price. And alumni of our previous conferences get an additional 15% discount on top of that. To lock in these low prices while they last, go to Wealthion.com conference. And if the challenges Darius has detailed in this interview have you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends, risks, and opportunities Darius has mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our interview with Darius Dale. Thank you.